Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 86 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And uh, I recently had a great opportunity to bring back a bunch of guests who are brand new to this format, these 86 episodes. But uh, we're back with me and Guido on the old format. And uh, Dr. Jade Tate is one of them. Been trying to Jade and I have been trying to make this one work for a long time, but uh, busy man. And uh, hopefully you guys are familiar with Jade and his work. If you're not, he's the author of well, a number of books, most notably Next Level Metabolism and Human 365. I got a signed copy of my, uh, my bookshelf, which I love. And uh, you're a doctor of naturopathic medicine. You specialize in integrative endocrinology. And right? so a lot of your stuff is, is metabolism and hormones. And uh, basically, you're a teacher of exercise nutrition. You're a what, personal trainer for what, 25 years, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. A lot of experience. Uh, it is great to have you back. How have you been? What's new? It's great. To, it's great to be back, my brother. Yeah, I've been busy, man. I'm sorry I missed you a couple of times. We've been going back and forth. But uh, yeah, just staying busy, man, writing a lot. Um, haven't really been in the clinic in the last several years and haven't really been engaged with personal training in the last se several years. It's really just been... Uh, writing books and building companies um, and been keeping me super busy, but I've been, I've been loving it, but certainly have a lot to share because my nose is always in the research and we can go in any direction you want in terms of marketing or, you know, uh, metabolism or self-development. These are all the things I love. Well, I got a little bit of everything. And so if anybody goes back, I actually encourage people to go back all the way to your, your other appearance on the old format. And anybody listening is going to notice it. I pointed out in that episode, you have a gift. You are one of my favorite guests in no small part due to your communication skills, the way that you make other people feel heard, important, make it about other people. And I wanted to ask, is that an innate skill, talent that you've always possessed? Or is that something that you very mindfully fostered over the years? And uh, I'll let you go there first. And I got some follow-up questions. Oh, uh, well, I appreciate that. You know what? It's not an innate skill. I, I will say this. I mean, well, perhaps it is. And I'll give you a little background on this. My mother and father are what I would call um, amazing communicators. And, and, uh, and, and actually, I don't know about communicators, but people who want to connect. And um, they are what I would call, you know, the, the next level human types. And what I mean by that is that they kind of made their life about other people, right? So it wasn't just about them and their family. It was about um, sharing and connecting. I come from an Italian-American family and my dad would always want people over. I would bring all my football friends over, football players on the team. And, you know, rather than most parents who would like, you know, kind of go in their study and sort of get away from the madness, my father would cook for us, hang with us, talk with us, always making people feel heard and seen. Now, in my younger years, I kind of rebelled against that, you know, uh, was was sort of like, uh, I would say, more egotistical, arrogant, you know, sort of. Um, uh, and, and this probably lasted up till uh, t my 20s. And then as life happens, we get hurt. Right. Things happen. Um, uh, heartbreaks and uh, relationships that are damaged and you start to learn. And when you see repeated patterns like that, that I saw throughout my teenage years with my brothers and sisters, with friends, uh, with uh, romantic partners and you get into your 20s and you say, this has happened to me four or five times, you start to realize, oh, the problem is with me. And so what I, <laughs> at that point, then it became something that I was like, look, you know, I, I want to be like my parents. I want to uh, make a difference and matter in the world. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to put aside my own needs, wants, desires, and stop pretending I'm the center of the universe and really try hard to um, you know, make other people uh, feel as special as they all are, no better, no worse than me. And my ego kind of was like a little more self-righteous when I was young. And that uh, was a practice. And now it makes me feel, uh, I don't feel like I've got it mastered, but it certainly is rewarding when I hear someone like you who I respect and admire and other people say that about me, because I think I do try hard and I do think uh, it's probably um, mostly second nature now. I mean, I can still go base level at times, but I really just feel like I'm not the end all be all. I'm not the center of the universe. Um, I'm important, I'm powerful, but I'm also nothing special. And I try to walk that fine line <laughs> between, uh, you know, sort of arrogance and insecurity. And I think it is the way that my philosophy about life now works. And uh, I tend to, you know, it's funny when you have something where you, that you used to be, that you see in others, it can sometimes trigger me when I see arrogant, you know, folks in our industry, in this industry, 
Um, but ultimately, I just come back and say, Jay, this, this was you as well. And you can certainly go base level. And it's really about just using all those things to get better. So it is cultivated. And I do think now it's become a rel relatively second nature. And I, I do appreciate that because uh, I'll say one more thing about that. It's, it's the belief system, right? Like ultimately in the end, like I know this about you, you're incredibly kind, incredibly complimentary. And what I think about um, individuals who have confidence, right? Like they, what they do is they do something natural in, in social dynamics. They subtly self-deprecate, not so much to take away their power, but they subtly self-deprecate and they overtly uh, compliment. I think you're one of those people and I try to be one of those people too. And I think when you do that, it helps other people feel connected and want to talk. And I do think that is social psychology 101 when we're interacting with humans. And so it really is something that I think we all could uh, you know, try harder to do, especially in this you know, day and age where we have all this divisiveness and, and stuff that's going on. Well, we live in an industry, you, you know, you allude to seeing in other people where you either see or the, there's a perception that there's a lot of ego, right? Mm. Or you can easily say, because there are technically low barriers to entry, which I don't derive that. Like I, mm. I have complex thoughts on that, but it certainly means that it can attract people who seek validation. Maybe mm. if it's, you know, they're coming from a place of insecurity. So, you know, any thoughts to the fitness professionals kind of, working their way through it, maybe hasn't fully realized yet that, you know, they're, they're still making it mostly about them and how to get them to open up their eyes and, and experience this transition towards making it about other people first. Because I've, I've found that if you give and support and share without any expectation of return, specific return, one for one, then the universe, the industry, people give back tenfold in a way that you could never repay. That's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, a, this is a, uh, a philosophical sort of discussion. I love this kind of stuff, as I know you do. And the way I look at it is you look at psychology 101, philosophy, psychology, you go, what, what do we humans do? For, the first thing I'd say to people is say, look, don't beat yourself up about it. We're all human. We all want to be acknowledged and seen and validated. Right. But we have to understand that there's several different drives. There's the, <laughs> I love that. Cat. There's the drive for power. Right. It's like, look at me. I'm powerful. I'm fitter than you. I'm healthier than you. And, you know, um, there's that. And, and it's normal. We want to kind of be see ourselves as powerful. We want other people to see ourselves as powerful. There's the drive for popularity. Right. Like I want people to like me. There's the drive for pleasure. Right. Like I just want to feel good about things. And then there's the drive for purpose. And what happens is, as we're younger, I think, and I don't mean necessarily in age, I mean, younger in mind, because some people you know, most people, I would say, all the way to their 80s, die trying to substitute power, pleasure, and popularity for purpose. And they don't realize that what they really want is to matter and make a difference. And so they think wrongly that if I get a power, I'll matter and make a difference. If I get popularity, I'll matter and make a difference. If I have lots of pleasure, I'll at least matter or feel good about, the about life. But purpose is the only one that actually works. The rest of them are a self-destructive process and you have to just figure it out. Some people you can't tell that to, some people just have to figure it out. And I will say this final thing, if you're a professional and you're wanting to make money and help people, which I actually think is the way to think about this. Too often you have two types of people, right? It's like, I just wanna make money, me, me, me. And then it's, I, I wanna just help people, them, them, them. Both of those are the wrong approach. It has to be, me and you simultaneously. In other words, I have to benefit and you have to benefit. If I put myself first and forget about you, we both suffer. And if I put you first and forget about me, we both suffer. So it has to be me and you. And that is the difference between purpose and all those other things. Purpose is the humble recognition that I have something to share that will make a difference and that I also deserve to benefit from that. It's not an ego-based thing. It's you and me. And so I would say that you can try doing it the other way. You could try searching popularity, pleasure, and power, but ultimately you're going to have to come back to purpose. And that's actually when you're going to feel fulfilled. And that's when you're going to actually have people both pay you money and also tell you that they appreciate you, which is basically what we all want. I would say most importantly, though, you have this sense that you appreciate yourself. I think I have this theory that 
all of us humans, all we really want is when we die is to be proud of what we did and who we were. I think that is the ultimate end all be all. And if you continue to play, uh, you know, chase power, pleasure and popularity, you're never going to get that. Something that you said that's embedded in there, this dichotomy, well, false dichotomy between you know, either making money or helping people. We get a lot of people who deflect the money-making part and just say, oh, no, no, I just want to help people. And they usually use it as some sort of way to either justify the fact that they're not charging their worth or that they're uncomfortable putting themselves out there because they feel like, oh, it would be egocentric or self-promoting or whatever to actually build, grow a brand. And big picture, you'll be able to help more people long-term a, if you're making a good living and able to save for retirement, because guess what? There's no retirement plan for any of us, right? There's no security in this. In theory, you're good at your job. There's a lot of security. And something I encourage people to do is, is build a brand, do stuff that people can see and consume outside of just the one-on-one -on -one training in front of, you know, the client in front of you, because we may not all have stamina to do that on, you know, the same level, do, you know, do the 60 sessions a week or, or whatever. Some people are doing crazier stuff than that up into our fifties and sixties. Like not everybody wants to do that. You know, you moved off of the training floor and, and scaled. And a lot of people are afraid to say it's okay to actually make a good living doing this because they feel like, well, or, or, to, or to put their, put themselves out there and, and grow brand. Maybe it's writing articles, maybe it's YouTube, whatever, because they think that's somehow selling out or it's going to mean that they no longer care about the person in front of them. The best way to have a greater impact on more people is to actually make a really good living so you actually stay in this industry instead of ending up going, well, shit, man, I can't cut this. I can't handle the, the uncertainty about my income. So I'm going to go become a paramedic. And trust me, I work with a bunch of paramedics. That's a noble profession. It's a tough profession. But, you know, I am grateful I get to do what I do instead of some of the stuff that, uh, you know, I see people around me doing or, you know, some of the trainers that I know who've left the industry, right? So here's another big one that's, that's embedded in this too is, all this stuff about communication, we know that this is essential to our client outcomes. You know, we hear about doctors all the time. Uh, their bedside manner affects both the client's outcome, but also whether or not they get sued, right? So thoughts on that and the importance of coaches leaning into developing these skills. Yeah. From my perspective, you know, again, we, we forget that this is, a, it's, this is an industry of connection. Like in the end, and, and I know a lot of people go, think about it this way. You look around and you go, skill set, right? There's a lot of very talented people who know a lot. And there's a lot of them not making, making money. If you go across the board and you say, um, who's making the most money or has the most clients hanging around? It's going to be the person who connects with their clients, has empathy and compassion, and can communicate well with their clients, not the person who has no empathy, no compassion, can't communicate, but knows the most. And I actually think we've got that wrong. So what we do is we put all our effort into, I want to be the smartest person in the room. I know all the ins and outs of training. I know all the ins and outs of mobility and stability and kinesiology and, and biochemistry and all these things. Yet you can't communicate and you have no compassion and empathy. And by the way, Compassion and empathy are the first stage to communication because no one's going to listen to you without compassion and empathy. And that's, so that's the first thing you need to understand. If you don't have compassion and empathy for what your clients are going through and your patients are going through, they're not going to listen to you anyway. And so that's step one. And then step two is to actually be able to communicate in a way that gets buy-in. And you don't have to have a, you know, an expertise that's way up here to do that. All you have to do is be one step above where your client patient is. And so this is what I think um, a lot of people in the industry get confused with. Even, even uh, you see this happen a lot, and I'll just give you some of the things that have happened to me in my career. I'm someone who, when I think about what I want to communicate, I'm not thinking uh, about uh, how Andrew's going to take it, right? I'm not thinking, is Andrew going to think I'm smart? I'm not thinking about is Alan Cosgrove or John Berardi or whoever else that I put on a pedestal, what they're going to think about me if they read my stuff. I go, what do I need to say and how do I need to say it in a way that gets this purpose, this person's attention? And by the way, you'll see what happens here because a lot of people in the industry can't stand that because they don't like terminology like metabolic damage or 
estrogen dominant or don't use that word. It's not accurate or whatever it is they're saying. And what I'm trying to, to do is I'm saying, I don't care about that. I have the courage to be disliked in the industry. I want to be heard and get buy-in from my clients and patients. And so that's another thing that happens here. Cause I think part of what drives everybody wanting to talk this high language is they're afraid that someone's going to come back around and go, what are you talking about? That's not this, this, and this. And by the way, one of my biggest pet peeves in the industry is the people who attack professionals for communicating with their patients and clients. It is not helpful to us. Now, there is a side to this that is a fine line, right? Because a lot of people will um, use things and say things and do things that I think we could, we would all agree based on what they're talking is the expertise isn't necessarily there and they're outsourcing that expertise. That's a whole different matter. Um, so we need to give ourselves first, in my opinion, the uh, ability to be compassionate and empathetic with where people are. That helps them listen. And then we need to speak in their language, not the language of our peers. Like when people talk about things like metabolic damage, that's the language they're using. We might not use that language, but if we use neuroendocrine you know, uh, disruption, which would be the term, you know, I guess that we would, you know, I would use when I'm talking to you, Andrew, about metabolic damage, no one's going to understand what that is on the client level. And so this to me is the first step in communication. To me, the next step in good communication is that when we have our system, see, the thing is, people are going to look at all of us and they're going to go, why would I go with Jade versus Andrew versus Jane versus Jack, right? Why would I do that? They we're all essentially in the same service industry, right? So they're going to go, who is the, the credible person here? And to me, if you have a framework that, that um, explains what you do and someone else doesn't have a framework that explains what you do, you always win because frameworks bring credibility. For example, I'll give you an example of a framework. If, I, if, if you tell someone you need to just eat less and exercise more. And you need to just do this workout and here it is. That's not a framework, right? That's what everyone else is doing. But if I come in and say something along the lines of, look, you need to balance sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. And this is an acronym. It stands for SHMEC. And you need to keep your SHMEC in check. And that tells you that your hormones are balanced. No one in our industry is going to like that language, but our end user is going to love that language because they just were like, Oh my God, I just got a formula, a framework that teaches me a big, you know, a, a bunch of stuff about nutrition all in one pithy little sentence that I can remember. If my schmeck is in check, I know I'm eating the right things. If my schmeck is out of check, I know I'm not eating the right things for me. That is a powerful thing for an end user to use versus me saying all this biochemistry stuff and you need to do this or you need to do that. And they need to read a whole book and forget half of it by the time they get there. So to me, that's the next part. I'll go ahead and stop there, but I'll just sum it up by essentially saying there's three steps. One, empathy, compassion. Two, speak in their language. Three, come up with frameworks that communicate these big things that you're trying to explain to people that make it simple for them. If you can begin communication with those three things, then all of a sudden you got people like Andrew, who we all love and respect, saying, wow, you're a good communicator. And by the way, you won't care by the time you get there. You'll just be like, that's kind of cool that he thinks that. Right. So that's kind of how I look at it, if that's helpful. It is. And again, here you go again, make it about me. Right. So perfect example of what I was talking about. So Guido, when we were, did the old podcast with you, he loved the whole thing you had to say about smack, schmack mm -hmm. and schmack and check. And I still remember right? Again, it stands out. I'll even give another example I'm kind of passionate about. And by the time this airs, I have a social media post that will talk about this. It's how some people in our industry love policing the word tone, right? Muscle tone. Mm -hmm. And they get twisted about it. And they, they'll do these social media posts and say, quote, tone isn't a thing, blah, 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 blah. And then a whole bunch of other people are going to come in and go, yeah, you're so right. This is awesome. Bunch of fitness professionals. It's a little echo chamber. And it's meaningless nonsense because it's completely missing the language that people use. People use the word, hey, I, I get this all the time. It's like, hey, I don't want to get too bulky. I just want to tone up a little bit. And a lot of trainers can't help themselves but say, well, actually, tone isn't a thing. I'll do my best Jordan Syed sort of like, you know, <laughs> you know, condescending sort of whatever. And 
you imagine the person, the general population person who's following someone is like, oh, actually tone isn't a thing. And they're kind of like, oh, okay. But you do that to the person who sits in front of you. And now they're, they're being vulnerable. They're, they're scared to even be there. And they're intimidated by the process. They're intimidated by you. They don't know you yet. And you turn around and you educate them and lecture them on why they're wrong about something. Guess what? They're walking out the door. They're not training with you. Meanwhile, a lot of other coaches, you know what I'll do? I mean, I actually don't use the word tone in, in my writing. Like, because I mean, yeah, I get the nuance, but I know it's the language that people use. They understand it. And every damn tree, you know what the fuck people mean when they say they want to get toned up. So you don't have to lecture them. I'll smile and say, I know exactly what you mean. Tell me more about your goals. I want it. And I'll listen. And then they just get deeper into this stuff. And then you can start working with them. And maybe over the course of one month, two months, three months, whatever, without even saying, hey, remember when you said tone? That's, that's bullshit. We just turn around and we teach them about, here's how you build muscle. Here's how you work on your nutrition. Here's how you get leaner, right? All this sort of stuff. And then you move them so far past, it's not even a concern. Mm. You've done the whole education thing. You've taught them the stuff that they need to know without ever making them feel stupid. And their trainers just hung up on this thing. And I see the social media post, and there are people I like who do this social media post about tone isn't a thing. And I, I look at them like, you motherfuckers are really missing the point here. You're being pedantic and you're talking into an echo chamber of people who agree with you and you're doing exactly nothing to change the lives or attract the people who we are supposed to be helping, right? Yeah, yeah. And more to the point, they're, they're missing, again, that is a symptom of a power or popularity chaser. Now, again, no judgment, no judgment. There's times still where I chase power and popularity, and I have to remind myself, Jade, chase purpose. Power and popularity is not going to get you there. So it's not a judgment for any of you who do this. It's just basically to take a step back. And I think this is what Andrew's telling all of us and reminding all of us of. It's take a step back from the need, the, the natural human need, right? And now I'm expressing empathy and compassion, by the way, for all of us, because we do this. Yep. But it's just the natural human need for us to chase power and popularity. We all want that. No judgment. However, take a step back and say, if I want to help myself and simultaneously help others, I should be operating from a place of purpose. And purpose doesn't care what people call things. Purpose just goes, I want to get you results. And purpose will educate over time to what Andrew said. Why do we have to do it all at, at once to show how smart we are? We just go, yeah, whatever you, whatever you think. And then over time, even without you ever educating directly on tone, people are going to be like, you know, uh, using a different terminology. They're going to be using your language anyway. So I agree with you. It's not something that we should be wasting our time with and people do. Now, let's, let's cover one thing here about social media and, and humans in general and media in general. We humans uh, look around in, in the world and we say, what, what is going to catch our attention? Right. And so anything that is um, a little more dangerous or edgy or sensational is always going to catch our attention than anything that is a little bit more subdued or nuanced or, um, you know, not as edgy. And the reason why is, you know, it's evolutionary in a sense. It's like, you know, you are going to need to look out for dangerous things so you don't get eaten or injured or whatever before you look for beautiful things. In fact, the danger has to go away before your brain can then focus on the beautiful things in life. And so this is what we do. However, if we're not aware of it, then we get caught in this sensational loop and we start doing it ourselves. But think about what that does to our end users, right? The end user then can never actually feel good about what they're doing because everything is about edginess and sensationalism. And in fact, what they'll do, if you keep doing that to them, you're actually priming them to move away from you later when you're not edgy enough. Because guess what? When you work with a client, they're going to eventually get used to you. And if you're teaching them to only respond to sensational, edgy stuff, they're eventually going to want to go just someplace new just because it's someplace new. And, and that's what we're training people to do. It's also why, you know, conspiracy theories are exploding and all this stuff is exploding because it's all edgy. And that's what our brains are now primed with. I would say we need to kind of take a step back and say, look, we can be edgy in our marketing with powerful hooks, with, uh, you know, uh, language that uh, is uh, not exactly uh, what we all would talk when we if we were in a room together as professionals, but we'll get people's attention but then come back and get them focusing on just the process, not the new thing. And I think this is, again, where we make some of our mistakes in this industry. It is important to remember who we are actually 
here for. And I'm not saying we're here for them. I'm not also saying we're here for, for us. We are here for both. And if we want to make money and make a difference, and that's how I look at it, I want to make money and make a difference, then I have to get this right. I have to, I have to approach this balance the correct way. And if you look across the industry, some of the names you threw out there, you know, Dr. John Berardi, got to meet him and hang out with him in person in February at an event. And there's so many other, your communication style, even just the way you talk sometimes reminds me a lot of Luca Hosevar, right? Luca's mm -hmm. great energy. And you look at people who reached more people, impact more people because they, they started out just like you and me, uh, you know, trainer, commercial gym on the floor, punching hours. And they stepped into growing something much, much, much bigger variety with precision nutrition. Imagine how many coaches and therefore clients he's influenced because of the architecture that he founded with PN. Uh, look what Luke is doing, mentoring other people. He's got bigger ground. You know, he's creating an experience for all the members there, all the coaches that come to his educational stuff and they're scaling that out. These are people who are very purpose driven mm -hmm. and they were willing to put in the work along the way and not unlike yourself and where you are, any any things you've observed within your own career that allowed you to progress where you are now with other people, your peers, people you respect, you look up to, your mentors, linchpins to being able to go through that career transition? Yeah, I think uh, a couple things. First of all, I mean, again, it, it's this will be saying the power of popularity thing a little bit differently. But one of the things is, is that. Um, you know, and by the way, I still do this to some degree, right? And, you know, it's like, it's, it's largely gone out of my system, but I'm also 50, but I still do what I'm going to tell you to some degree. And that is this idea of that when I'm posting content and when I'm interacting and when I'm writing books, the default state is, um, am I smart? Am, is Andrew going to be impressed? Is Luca going to be impressed? Isn't you know, and, and ultimately the, this is an Adlerian psychology principle though. Ultimately, though, it, if I do that and carry that to the nth degree, I have to realize that um, most of these people are never going to look at my work anyway. They're too busy doing their own work. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing about this is, is that uh, if, if I'm in a position where I am worried about that, then I cannot do my best work. And I, can't, I have to realize that even if I do do my best work, there's still going to be someone that hates on me. So it's just the natural consequence of things. And so what, what essentially I'm saying is if you're looking around and you're saying, I got to keep every from, from everyone from hating me and I got to police that, then what happens is you become very vanilla. You become vanilla to your clients. You become vanilla in the industry and you become vanilla uh, to uh, your peers too. And so the Adlerian principle is the courage to be disliked. He wrote about this. This is one of the key things that we have to do as humans. We have to have the courage to be disliked. We have to then have the courage to be authentic, which is basically saying the same thing. When, I, when you say, I want to be an authentic trainer or an authentic uh, practitioner, what you're essentially saying is, I'm going to have the courage to be disliked. Because when you are yourself, you are going to be disliked and hated by certain people. Now, you're also going to be loved by certain people. And that's the whole thing. As soon as you step forward and you're like, I'm going to be authentic, they're going to get love and hate. As soon as you say, I want nothing but love, you are going to get no hate, maybe, and no love either. And so we have to take a stand. That's the first thing. Now, I understand for a lot of you um, who are doing this, again, no judgment. I was there first. In the beginning of this process, we don't necessarily know what our authentic self is. And so we have to look around and we see what works, right? And we get this wrong too, because we might go and see, and I see this a lot, there, there are a lot of people in this industry who have big followings, who um, do these pithy memes, who do these things that are, you know, um, this is just me. I'm not saying that you guys have to agree with this, but what, what kind of makes me feel bad for the person and bad for the industry is when someone has a video of some professional saying something and then they come on and just lambast them. And that's how they're, they're trying to get attention. To me, I go, what is that doing for anyone? And I get that you'll see, oh, well, that's working. They're getting followers. But you have to understand that if you, re if you repeat that, thinking that that's going to work, A, you're probably not being authentic. And B, what you're doing is you're getting a lot of people 
who have the same mentality, who like to tear people down, who like, you know, these pithy memes, they like the entertainment. And here's the, the thing about this. There's two types of people in this industry. There's entertainers and there's educators. And the entertainers get a lot of attention and they have big followings and stuff like that. They don't necessarily make the money and their careers don't necessarily last as long. Most of the educators educate them their way into bigger things because they're not wasting their time entertaining constantly. Now, if you could be both, if you could be a great educator with enough entertainment, then you got the thing there that's, that's you know, you got the, the holy grail. But that's what I would say that is what's going on with people. They need to be authentic or have the courage to be disliked. They need to realize that, okay, if they're not authentic, they gotta give themselves time to get there, but don't fall into the trap of copycatting entertainers who stir up the pot and don't necessarily aren't necessarily building a business. You can't really build a business, in my opinion, off memes and things like that. Very few people do that. They have great followings and all that kind of stuff, but it's hard over the long run. And by the way, think about this. We're, as we age and most people, you know, the population is aging. Most people you're going to work with are going to be between the ages of 35 and 65, right? You're not, they have a, most of their following are these huge, huge followings of people between the ages of 20 and 35. What happens is once you get past that age and start maturing, that kind of pithiness and, uh, you know, uh, stuff falls out of favor anyway. So you're going to, if you want a, long, a career that's long, that has longevity, what you want to do is just do your work. It's kind of like this. I was talking to my brother yesterday. You might relate to this, Andrew, but we're both in our fifties now, right? Like, well, I'm 49. He's okay. 44, man. 44. Yep. So he, I'm, I'm 49, he's 53. And, and he was saying, I was telling him, I was like, my goal now is just to be able to deadlift in the fours, squat in the threes and, you know, bench press 225 when I'm 70, right? Like that's my goal. And that's a slow uh, process, in, you know, sort of in the gym. And I think it's gotta be the same thing in our marketing. My goal is, it's kind of like how, how I think you show up. And, you know, now that we're friends and we kind of watch each other, it's like, to me, it's slow and steady education and almost always i mean there's times where you go base level there's times where i might go base level but 99 percent of the time when i watch you it's education for professionals that is useful education and slowly but surely you become a voice and you are now a voice in this community of reason and someone that's just like when all the stuff blows up there's the we people go to the voices of reason well actually i'll say this when all the stuff blows up the people who don't spend money and just want to yell and scream go to the base levels. But the people who really want help and are willing to spend money go to the voices of reason. And so to me, this is what we need to be thinking about. Far too many people are coming into this industry and they are not looking at it from the perspective of the individual. I'll give you an example that's controversy. I just posted a, con uh, a piece of content on my social media yesterday that was about the attacks on impossible meats and, and these kinds of things like these these. Uh, faux meats or fake meats. And I don't like these things and I won't recommend them uh, to individuals. However, empathy and compassion says if you're eating those things, then I'm not going to, you know, be like, oh my God, that's toxic. It's going to kill you. It's going to make your head explode. I'm just basically going to be like, okay, this is a convenience oriented person. Over time, I'm going to pay close attention to that. I'm not going to attack them for what they do. And I'm going to hopefully be able to educate them to the point that maybe this convenience type diet is not going to be optimal. But to me, they can always include that stuff in small amounts. Why am I going to waste my time attacking that kind of stuff? And this is what the industry does. And what it is, is again, it's I'm looking for a team to be a part of. Let's all attack something. Meanwhile, you know, I haven't in my clinical career, I have taken people off Coke, put them on diet Coke and seen them lose a lot of weight from that one shift. And so from my perspective, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, this natural medicine bias that you can't, you know, that's going to make your head explode. And I'm sitting here saying, all I care about is getting results. I don't care about fighting against, you know, the, the, uh, big Coke and, and, and big meat, you know, a big fake, big soy or whatever. I'm just like, I'm here to get my people results and I'm not going to attack them for these small things that aren't going to make a difference. Anyway, trust me, telling someone to avoid impossible meats is not going to get them results. It's not going to, you know, it's, it's not going to turn them into, you know, the lean, mean, healthy fighting machine that we think it is. These are the things I think we need to be aware of. We're fighting the wrong battles oftentimes. Well, what you just said, I got excited because you, 
you get a lot of people who talk to their echo chamber. They attract a tribe of like minds and they will say things, sometimes sensational or what have you, and they will create a bad guy, an artificial, arbitrary, or you know, specific example of a bad guy. And sometimes those bad guys are bad guys. But even still, you end up with this community that just goes, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. And oftentimes, those people may not even necessarily be supporting you in your business. They're just a bunch of people who are validating you for what you're saying. But we're completely missing out on the opportunity to change the minds of the people who are vulnerable or the people who are already kind of tipped over the edge and using or consuming things that we know probably aren't going to be the best thing for them or, or missing like what you alluded to the, the overall ability to just get that person healthier, no matter what they're doing. And the, the, the Coke diet, I thought you're going getting people off like cocaine, but it's just diet <laughs> like, Oh yeah. Well that too. Um, but yeah, like you get people and I don't touch artificial sweeteners on my media because my God, it just makes people crazy. But Dr. Spencer Dolsky is another guy who does a really good job with this stuff and people go completely ballistic. But yeah, it, ultimately you get somewhat off of like, you know, tons and tons of excess calories because they're consuming way too much sugar and they have some diet drinks and they're starting to lose weight. That's probably going to have a more profound impact on their health. Uh, you know, I'm not, yeah, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need our artificial sweeteners. Sure. We don't live in a perfect world. And there's a lot of people right now who are desperate for just to feel better. And that might be the best route to it. And I find that we're, we're just caught up as an industry of fighting these ideological battles and creating real or arbitrary enemies and tribes. And a lot of that stuff goes, fights at a level completely above and away from the person who's just sitting there going, man, just, I want to feel better. I don't want to be in pain anymore. I, I want answers. I want someone that I feel like actually hears me and listens to me instead of just yells into an echo chamber because I'm in real pain. And at the end of the day, what, what are we trying to do? Are we, are we trying to just score points with our peers? Are we trying to, you know, impress the Eric Cressy's of the, of the world? You know what? Eric Cressy and I, I've never interacted with Eric. I, I know Pete and Tony really well. They're great guys. But people like Eric are going to be far more impressed with you as a fitness professional if they somehow wander past you and they see that you're actually helping the end user, making people feel better. That's what impresses people who are really successful, like people like John Berardi. And instead of getting caught up in, in a lot of this stuff, and, and I've made a very deliberate point of trying not to get caught up at all in these sort of battles or what have you. Every once in a while, someone wanders in and starts yapping at me. Okay, cool. Listen to them, hear them out. If they're disingenuous, block them, restrict them, get rid of them, move on with my day. I don't need that stress entering my world because it affects my ability to show up in my client session with my client, Larry, or anybody else I work with. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's my philosophy. And I, I hope more fitness professionals gain sight of the importance of this stuff, get focused on the right things again. And I mean, I think social media can be a powerful force for positive. And I try to showcase how to do that deliberately with mine, with this podcast, with anything else I do. And man, like it's way more fulfilling just to do that. And it requires patience and it requires commitment to show up every day, doing good things without any, any specific expectation of a result. But guess what? My media is an example of explosive growth and success so it just it just took a whole bunch of years to kind of reach that apex and it continues to go so it just it, it's patience anyway i'm, I'm yeah. going all, and let me all say, the place, so i'll let you pull yeah, back let me let me say one more thing about patience i mean from my perspective um look around there's very few um, you know, I've been in this industry since, you know, well, I was I was one of the first ones who was, you know, I'm 50 now. So in 2004, I was online before Facebook was a big thing. I was one of the first people on that. I've seen this this happen a lot. And I've seen the entertainers come and go. And I've seen the educators. And, and by the way, when I say come or go, it doesn't seem like they come and go that fast. It's like every five years or so. So you're watching someone now and you're thinking it's working or you thinking what you're doing is working. And to me, I go, don't use the metrics of who's this is the way I would do it. Let's just say let's play a game. Just say, OK, you know what? I hear you guys. I hear you, Andrew. I hear you, Jade. But still, I feel like I look around and I see these people, you know, who are doing these, you know, these things and, you know, making most of their stuff about entertainment and attacks doing well what i would do is i would say okay 
try it. Try to do that yourself. And what you're going to see is, yeah, you'll get followers. You'll get your echo chamber. Your money is going to be like this. Maybe it'll go up, but it's going to be like this. It's not going to be like this. It's and, and you're and you're likely to give up after the next five years. I've seen it over and over again where it's like this person and you can almost see it's like they're not going to win with that approach, you know, and, and it's not like I know for sure. I just go. My bet is they're not going to win with that approach. By the way, some do. And it's just that you got a lot of the big ones and everyone else is just parroting what they're doing. And I still I know for a fact, actually, a lot of those people are not making much, that much money. Right. Um, for example, I know an example of uh, someone who very few people in the industry even know who's basically pulling down three mil a year with a social media following of 2000 people because she knows how to do this work on the background, email marketing and everything else. You know, um, and I know other people who have, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, social media followers who are barely making six figures a year. And so the patient idea here is that it, do you again want to help yourself and help others? There is a way and a formula that works almost all of the time. And you will see a lot of these people if you look and you will see very few people who are using the attack, these attack tactics and you know that kind of stuff, making money along with their profile. You just don't see it that often. Now, prove me wrong, try it yourself, but just measure the right metrics. Ask yourself, am I getting attention or am I getting cash in pocket and helping people? That's how I would uh, look at this. And I'll say one more thing here in terms of uh, how I would say we, we, we should approach this based on my um, experience. One of the things that I think is the biggest impediment to us growing as individuals and progressing as business people in this field is our biases and our dogma against or for particular things. Let's just go through an example. If you're somebody who is, um, there is a marketing principle of niching down, right? So let's say you niche down and you're like, I'm gonna be a vegetarian, okay? Uh, and I'm only gonna work with vegetarians. Uh, let's say you even niche down further. I'm gonna work with vegans, okay? That's all good because you know, you're kind of, but then you start going, I'm gonna, I'm going to uh, niche down to vegans and I'm going to only deal with vegans who are anti-soy people. And I'm going to rail against soy, soy, soy. What happens is now you become the vegan anti-soy person and it, you niche down so far and then you go off to the side and start attacking things. And now no, there's nobody left there for you to actually do anything with. And then you're going like, where's the business? And it's because you're missing the point. You've niched down so far based on your biases. And then you've made your business about attacking uh, people who don't agree with your biases. And then you're wondering why I'm not making money. Instead, if you were open-minded and said, okay, I'm going to be about veganism, but I'll work with some vegetarians and I'll work with, and, and even though I'm a, a resistance training guy, I'll certainly work with any runners who, or any other people who want to be in this. And I'm going to be inclusive with this particular framework I come up with, right? It's kind of like a one person in the industry, a, a friend of mine, a paleo chef. I don't know if you know Mary Shinuda, but she, she basically niched down, saw what was happening in the paleo community, that that was perhaps not necessarily going to be uh, you know, anytime you go on the keto doctor or the paleo chef or anything like that, you are kind of creating a situation that is like, what happens when that's not popular? So now she's more like her principles are it's paleo you. I myself eat largely paleo, but to me, paleo means paleo you, meaning that I will, I will help you uh, uh, create a convenience based paleo diet. I will help you create a paleo diet that is more primal in nature or a paleo diet is more vegetarian in nature. And to me, when she started to do that, she began to see more income and more, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, action and, and, you know, more people sort of following her. Now I wish uh, Mary was here. She's a friend of mine because she might be like, well, that's not exactly how it works, Jay, but that's how I see it. And I think that we should uh, kind of keep that in mind. Let your biases go because otherwise you know, no, we all would agree that whoever came up with the, you know, the keto chef and the keto trainer and the keto this and that, can't we all see that perhaps in five years when keto is no longer the fad, that they're going to have to change their brand name, perhaps? Mm -hmm. that's, that's where bias and dogma and thinking only through one lens 
can hurt you versus like, I'm just Jade Tita. Andrew's just Andrew Coates, right? Like it, it's, it's, a, it, and we're just authentically doing our stuff. Now we have our biases, but we don't project our biases onto the end user to such a degree that they, to such a degree that they go, he's not for me. That's what I, I want people to be aware of. I even will make social media posts that counter my own biases. And sometimes they're a reminder to me, but there's something resonant that I want other people to share, whether it's like, I used to have a fairly strong anti-CrossFit bias. I no longer possess that bias. And I tend to, while I'm not a CrossFit practitioner advocate, I see the positives in it. You know, I also, I mean, I'm equal opportunity, fair criticism of the flaws within various dietary ideologies. And I am resistant to subscribing rigidly to a dietary ideology like it's a religion and or proselytizing it, evangelizing it. I don't like that. But I think that if someone likes and it suits their lifestyle, you know, a keto diet or some of this stuff, I'm fine. Carnivore diet. Okay, cool. I understand that while I do not think long-term, I train a cardiologist. He definitely is not a big fan of keto and carnivore diets. And he says, there's going to be some bad shit long-term. But I understand that the person who deals with all kinds of dietary intolerances that they don't understand and they try carnivore and they feel better because it's relatively hypoallergenic because all the things they haven't figured out yet are out of their system. I get that. So lecturing that person saying carnivore diet is fucking stupid isn't going to help that person. It's just going to, they're going to, it's going to bake in their, their confirmation bias that this is the greatest thing ever. And I'll pivot a little bit. And you said something about niching and I have two thoughts. One, I think niching can be overrated, especially for trainers early in their careers. I think telling brand new trainers, especially if they're new to the online space, to really niche down hard, I think is a mistake. I still think you have to gain a lot of experience and be really strong, you know, and not, and not always everything to everybody, but broad set of skills. And then over time, your niche will often find you. It's like, 100%. and I've used Eric Cressy's example a few times and, you know, Pete Dupuy and Tony, but like everybody thinks about, you know, Cressy sports performance as like, they are the pitching, uh, baseball pitching people. Well, they didn't start out as trades. Like, let's go go out and get all these major league baseball pitchers, minor league baseball pitchers. They just, Eric is really good with the shoulder stuff. And they started seeing clients in that space. And then it just grew into something that they own that space, right? The second thought is we're also seeing more of a trend towards people grabbing onto what I call real estate. And so, and I like using carnivore and, and the liver king as an example of this. It's like, all right, well, all the really valuable real estate in the center of the city is, is already owned. Someone has all that stuff. Or it's like, it's so generic, it's hard to own that. So you're getting these crazier further reaches from the city. That's like a two hour commute that is near like in the swamp and no one wants to live there, but that's what's left and available. So some people are actually like doubling down on these ridiculous positions. Every once in a while, one of them, like again, the liver king takes off like wildfire. And that's a, that's a marketing entity, right? And I, I'm, I'm not interested in like, I, I use him as a proxy for kind of some of the stuff in the industry, but that's a really extreme piece of real estate. The snake diet guy, he's local here. That's an extreme piece of real estate. He took Jason Fung's fasting obesity code stuff and then took it to the nth degree, really extreme, drinking your own urine, all this kind of crazy stuff. And I don't know, man, there's a market for crazy sometimes for extreme stuff. But, you know, I don't think that's the way for most people to go. And I wanted people at least to see what's going on here. It's people just reaching for the crazier and more remote and extreme real estate. And eventually anything worthwhile is, has either already run out because no one else wants it. And I mean, what's, what's next? like after the liver king, like carnivore is, you know, kind of hardcore, but like, okay, let's get rid of all the other meat and just like organ meat, hmm. right? Like it's getting crazier and crazier. So I don't know what's next after that. Yeah, I, I have uh, this, this will bring me to, you know, cause I know right now we're talking more philosophical principles and I'll, I'll help. Let's, let's help everyone who's listening, try to get down to then what do you do? But uh, to finish up that thought about this to me, I go, the only bias you should have and work towards is a bias against bias. The only dogma that you should have and work towards is a bias or a dogma against dogmatism, right? If, in other words, bias against our own bias and having a dogma against our own dogmatic viewpoints. If we can uh, cultivate that, we're going to be uh, much better as humans and much better business people. Now, 
one of the things Andrew said to all of us is like, what's next? Well, I think I'll make a prediction and then we can all, you know, Andrew and I can get together in a couple of years or next year and talk about, you know, was that, is that prediction coming to fruition or did it? To me, I think we are finally, and, and part of this is, uh, this prediction is uh, just seeing the writing on the wall. I am starting to see, and I actually think we may be getting closer and closer to the do what works for you approach. I would say that that's actually what's worked always. Those, the people who are been practicing that over the long run silently are the ones who are making the most uh, inroads. So if that is true, and by the way, you can take me to task on this. Jay Tita doesn't know everything. And I just have, I'm just a guy with an opinion, but it is, it is an educated opinion. I have been around for a long time and I've had success in this industry and, and in business. Here's to me what I would suggest one place to start, because I can imagine if you're, you're a professional, you're sitting there like, okay, well, here's two guys just kind of opining about all the stuff they don't like, but what are some take-home tools for me here here's the way i would do this so let's say someone comes into you and they uh tell you and that they love fasting okay and that they were thinking about starting the fasting approach to me it's like perfect whatever you want to do and then the education goes because look perfect whatever you want to do is an empathetic compassionate stand and even you can ask that's an entry point into understanding about them so what about what about fasting do you like? Well, you know, I feel like I'm addicted to food and I feel like if I stay away from food for long periods of time, that maybe that will help. I tend to eat the same amount at night regardless. So maybe if I don't eat during the day and you're just like, okay. But the next thing that comes out of that is, you know what? That's great. The proof is in the pudding. So your system should be around teaching people how to know if it's working or not. And in that case, you can look at every single approach that people bring and want to do as not something you need to rail against, but something that you're interested in proving or disproving in that individual experimental client that you have. So that each client begins to see themselves as their own scientific experiment. So you go, perfect. You want keto? Let's try it. You want fasting? Let's try it. You want to do uh, fasting plus a marathon running program? I don't think that's going to work for you, but I wouldn't even say I don't think that's going to work for you. I would just go, let's try it. Because the next thing I'm going to say is, and I'm going to lay out for them the framework that essentially says, here's how we're going to know if it works. If your sleep, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, biofeedback, and all that kind of stuff is in check, and you're feeling balanced and vital and motivated to work out and you know all that stuff, plus your body composition is moving in the right direction. It's optimizing and or maintaining if you already are optimized and your vitals and like blood pressure, blood sugars, all those kind of things. And blood labs are also optimizing. Then I don't care if you're eating cotton candy and diet Coke. Now, I think we all would know, say that's probably not going to work, but I don't care what you're doing if those three things are happening. So all I'm going to focus on then is let's do what works for you which opens up a huge amount of money for you and a huge amount of opportunity. Cause then you just go and in, cause when you say that to people, people go, so what, that's just trial and error. Right. And you're like, yeah. And I'm the guy that's going to help you do the trial and error or the girl that's going to help you do the trial and error. And in the end, we're going to find the exact approach that works for you. So maybe we started off with fasting and now it's just a 12 hour, you know, with food and without food and, you know, whatever it is, but you're focused on helping them take whatever they wanted to start with and saying the proof is in the pudding. Data will tell us. I love that you love that. Let's do it. I'm all for it. You know, um, and, you know, so to me, that's the approach. Now, the other approach would be some people just be like, I don't know what I want to do. And that's when you can introduce your bias. Right. But what I would say is, but then you still have to prove your bias works in the exact same way. So regardless of what it is, so to me, yes, there's room for your bias. There's room for what you want. There's room for here's how I like to do things. However, there's also room for essentially saying, let me test and see with every client. Does my system work for every client? And if you're honest with yourself, you already know it doesn't. You already know that it doesn't work for everybody. And so then you go, all right, what if I could develop a system that is not so dogmatic and so rigid and excludes everyone, but a system that is loosely something that I love and will kind of push people towards because it's what works for most of my clients and or me, but also is flexible enough to include all these other things and just go, here is the system that I use to tell if this works for you. 
And I can tell you, I know this because I'm building, you know, look, I, I'll just throw numbers at you. And it's not, it's just to illustrate how powerful this is. I have a company, my company, Metabolic Effect, that I, I partnered with National Health Sherpa, who is now metabolic.com. Well, it's metabolicliving.com and becoming metabolic.com. We have not even officially launched yet, and we are already a $100 million company. And we basically are building this around this principle of do what works for you. And I'm not telling you that to brag about me. I'm telling you that to be, this works. This system that I just showed you works. By the way, if you go and look, success leaves crumbs, right? Look at all the people, some of the people we were talking about, they do the same thing. Precision nutrition is largely the same kind of approach. It's not like we are a keto company. It is, we are a company that helps people using mostly behavioral therapies and, and habit change formulas to you know, slowly walk them into a lifestyle that will work for them. All of us can do this. And the other beautiful thing about that is that when you do that, you're always going to do it in your, your, a slightly different way. By the way, that's what I think that's what you do, Andrew. I think you do the exact same thing. I do it in a different way. We do it all in a different way. But these are the people who are slowly making progress because their system is not a ideology. Their system is a process that helps people discover for themselves what works. And so when the rubber meets the road, as you're designing this and you're saying everything that, you know, Andrew and Jay talked about, how do I make this uh, executable for me? I would say, I just told you, when people come in with a bias, go, perfect, let's see if it works. Here's the system we're going to use to show if it works. When people don't come in with a bias, you go, here's my bias. It seems to work most of the time for most of my clients, but here's the system we use to see if it works. And people are going to love that. You're going to learn more over your career than you ever could imagine. Because when you're biased and dogmatic, you can't learn. You be, when you come, become myopic and you're like this, and this is the only way to look at stuff, you will wake up in five years, realize what happened with your career. Why, why am I still in the same, uh, same money bracket that I was before? It's because you never learned. And by the way, it's, if you're biased and dogmatic, it doesn't matter how much intelligence you have because bias and dogma render intelligence mute. They literally take your ability to think away from you. Also, bias and dogma are the parents of ignorance and arrogance. So this is what we must uh, fight against. And there's a system we can use to do this that is just a beautiful system that still allows you to be an individual. So I hope that helps all of you listening here. You can do your bias. And also you can include people who have their biases. So long as you have an underlying system and framework that tests it. And this to me is the, re people talk about evidence-based, this, this, and this. To me, evidence-based is not how much research you know and whether you're using the research. That's part of it. But when you talk about evidence-based practice, it is one, the individual and their unique circumstances. Two, what the body of research says. And remember this about research. It is a tool for averages, not individuals, right? And then three, it incorporates the experience of the clinician or practitioner. That's what evidence-based medicine is. So um, I just outlined a way of doing things that is more evidence-based than what most people think is evidence-based medicine, because it includes the research, yes. It includes the individual, yes. And it includes the experience of the, cl the clinician. And so I'll shut up because I know I'm rambling there, but I hope that helps all of you uh, sort of understand, here's a way that I could be thinking about uh, putting my business together that actually would have longevity and I could focus on that instead of pithy memes and all this other stuff and copycat content and actually get some stuff done, help people make some money. Okay, this has been phenomenal. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been great to catch up. Uh, tell everybody where they can find your media, your books, so that they can check more of you out. Yeah, so uh, books, Audible, Amazon. Um, latest one is Next Level Metabolism. It's mainly for professionals. So actually, it's for all of you. Um, that book was not written at all as a diet book. It is, it is for professionals. Um, at JT on all the social media and my podcast is uh, Next Level Human. And brother, again, thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for having me on. Uh, like I said, before we even got on, I'm just uh, incredibly impressed and you've become one of the people that I'm learning from and you're just doing it the right way from my perspective. And um, it's not it's 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 just a, a really cool thing uh, to see uh, where you've come. And I appreciate you greatly. Thank you. And I'll remind everybody, you know, the way I started this one out is pointing out, Jade, the way that you communicate, the way that you make people feel. And I hope everybody listening really zeroes in on that and pays attention to it. And 
I got a feeling there's a lot of people that listen to this one right to the very end. Um, thank you so much. If anybody is finding this episode uh, for the first time through your media, um, go back, check out Jade's old episode. You got to scroll back a little bit or you can find some people like I had an episode which Dr. John Berardi was one of the last ones of the old format or uh, you know, I mentioned Luca Hosfar. Luca's done a number of, of appearances. You'll find a lot of the industry's who's who and powerhouses in, in my library. Uh, thank you so much. Um, if I've earned it, I hopefully you'll subscribe. You'll stick around and check out what I've got coming next week. Jade, thank you again, my friend. Love you, brother. Talk to you soon.